0: Change is tough. For anyone who works in healthcare around the topic of behaviors, we often comment on stages of change. Today on Through the Trees, I sit down with Alex Korath, supervisor of the Women's Residential Treatment Program at Cedar. We talk about the spectrum of addiction treatment, the evolution of the opioid epidemic, and comparing addiction change to that of diabetes. Or obesity. Addiction treatment healthcare is vast territory, much of it having yet to be fully charted. It also is a field with some of the most passionate and interesting of clinicians. Each week, we walk the addiction treatment trails, learning from experts of all backgrounds and specialties. My name is Pat Failing, and I'm an addiction psychiatrist for Cedar in the University of Colorado. You're listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Well, hi everyone. Uh, This is uh, Dr. Pat Failing, uh, here as part of the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast, Through the Trees. Uh, Today, I'm very uh, pleased to welcome Alex Korath to the show. Uh, Alex is the supervisor of behavioral health for the women's branch of CEDAR, for the uh, the inpatient residential treatment program. She does clinical work and also uh, supervision work for the staff and the clinicians, so she has a very uh, active presence in what we do in our women's recovery program. Alex, thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So our topic today is a lofty topic, but I think you're the right person uh, to have this dialogue and this interview about we're talking about change, so we're talking about the looking at the spectrum of change uh, within healthcare in general and, and really addiction healthcare and uh, how we can provide value for people who are very really willing to change, people who are really quite resistant for the change process, every everywhere in between. So can you tell me? A little of your experience in uh, in working with clients to start. Where how do you usually begin?
1: Uh, well, in this setting, typically patients are coming in and they're and they're a little beaten down. Maybe a little. Uh, they've either been brought in by family or friends um, without their without it being initially their decision, or they've done it collaboratively with family or friends, and so we usually have sort of two fronts we're dealing with in that respect. If someone's brought in on an, uh, an, an either real intervention or just family said, either you go to treatment or you, or you get out, um, then sometimes we're dealing with someone who comes in who is not really sure they were aware they needed to change. But the majority of people, by the time they get here, they're here collaboratively with their family, friends, stakeholders in their treatment who they recognize they need help in their family and Their support system wants to help them. So uh, just from the get-go, you have two different areas that you're looking at as far as readiness to change. uh, Usually coming in, the majority of people who come in here know they need to change. So they come in knowing, not necessarily knowing how, and we try to meet them where they're at.
0: So a little bit open-minded for a change process? They're curious, I guess?
1: Yes, the majority of people. By the time they get here, yes.
0: What comes next?
1: So, typically the first couple of days are just really dealing with the acute physical effects of withdrawal and coming down from whatever their substance of choice was. And having to get through that experience, we don't you, we don't get into too much on the clinical side during that time frame because at that point their body and brain are adjusting too much. So, where we start to come in is after a couple of days, once they're physically stabilized, they move over into the residential milieu, um, and they're put in with a group of people who are gonna be sort of their companions in early recovery in, uh, in residential treatment. And they're paired up with a counselor, they have a psychiatrist, and that's where we, we start the work at that point. Oftentimes, it's not unusual in the first couple of days to have this overwhelming sense of what have I done, why am I here, I need to go, I don't belong here. And a lot of that can come from anxiety, um, and a lot of that can come from uh, concern about being away from family and friends, uh, and also a concern about, is this the right level of care? Do I need this? I don't really need to change that much. The disease can start to sort of tell people, you don't need to be here, it's not that bad. I bet you could do this outside of here. So the first week of treatment, it's really common for someone to go through at least a couple of days of that feeling of ambivalence of, this is not really what I need. I, I can do this outside of here.
0: So uh, you use the word ambivalence. How would we describe that for our listeners? What, what is this?
1: Ambivalence is when you're just, you're not sure if you really need to change. It's You think you may, you think you may not. You're not 100% committed yet to the idea that you do need to change.
0: Kind of like uh, internally conflicted?
1: Yes. It's a great way to put it.
0: We must experience this quite a bit. Uh, highly ambivalent people, at least towards the beginning, I'm I'm imagining, and, and from what you're saying, they, they sound quite afraid, or they're nervous, maybe?
1: Very much so. Uh, I mean, residential treatment is not something that a lot of people are very familiar with, so it's a foreign environment and that automatically makes a lot of people anxious. And oftentimes the physical effects of withdrawal and the post-acute withdrawal phase can lead someone to have some pretty dramatic mood swings and be a little over overly emotional, more emotional than, than they're used to being. And that experience is also anxiety-provoking, can make someone feel like they're not in control. And oftentimes when you're used to using a substance to help modulate how you feel, to suddenly be feeling these mood swings, it, uh, the natural response is to want to be able to take control of those again.
0: So how do people tend to do this? So they, they, they kind of fight and claw to reestablish control in a way?
1: I mean, while they're in, in residential?
0: Yeah, we're, Yeah, where we're getting to know them and...
1: Well, we try to use a little bit of the the social support in here and the social support outside of here. So the social support in here being the the other people in treatment with them. A lot of times someone who's in their third or fourth week of treatment can be the best ally in helping someone in their first week in treatment work through some of the hardest times. Uh, And then as far as social support outside of here, we as a program will coach families and loved ones to... Let the person know that they want them with all their heart to stay in treatment and sometimes that means establishing boundaries of if you leave treatment early, you're not allowed home. Sometimes that means letting someone know, you know, if, if they leave treatment, there could be consequences with, their, with whatever outstanding legal issues they have or with um, child custody issues. And that sounds like we're holding something over their head, but it's more trying to remind someone rationally what will occur if they act on their emotions at this, in this moment.
0: Sure. This does feel quite healthcare. I don't think anybody really wants to be in a hospital setting or, or to have to go through things like this. But it does kind of emphasize that they, they may need to walk through the fire a little bit, at least towards the beginning. And then with, I guess, hope that they will feel better and better as each day goes on.
1: Yeah, very much so. I mean, if you, you know, the term rehab is used for both us and for physical rehab. If you want to compare it to something like that, if you were were in a physical rehab facility and had to relearn to walk after an accident, you would be going through a lot of emotional responses to that. You'd be having a hard time. Putting in the work, it would be painful, um, but the idea is you have to do that to, at the at the long run, get to where you want to be.
0: Well, that's perfect. That's a great analogy for this. Like it's really quite painful, but the we're playing for the long game uh, of really helping people make a significant change in their life. I like the rehab idea.
1: Yeah, exactly. We tell a lot of times, especially in the women's program, we're dealing a lot of times with mothers who can't imagine what it is to be away from their children for thirty days, and we'll. We often refocus to it's 30 days so that you can be better for the next 30 years. It's not just 30 days of being away. It's creating a better life in the future.
0: Yeah. I do understand this, that 30 days seems daunting for people.
1: Absolutely. Taking 30 days off of work seems daunting for people. Taking 30 days away from your home and you know your pets and family and uh, paying bills all seems insurmountable, but we are able to generally work with people to make accommodations to be able to take care of any actual outstanding logistic logistical things. And I think the reality is for most people, if they have if you have much of a supportive supportive social system, they want you to do well and they'll do what it takes to make it possible for you to be away from work and home for 30 days to to get better.
0: Now, Alex, um, can you tell us a little of your background in addiction treatment? You haven't always worked in a on this kind of level of just high intensity residential treatment. You also had a, a lot of outpatient experiences as well.
1: Right. I so I started at Cedar in this pat within this past year. Um, prior to that, I was um, back in Boston and I worked in outpatient methadone treatment. So. Outpatient opioid treatment, um, I mean, our entire population was adult, uh, opioid dependent, often um, low socioeconomic status, um, often, you know, while opioid dependence was a part of the, was their major drug of choice, there's often a lot of other drug use involved as well. So I was working in that environment on, at different levels for eight years prior to coming here. Okay.
0: Interesting. So, an eight-year span. So, you must have seen a lot.
1: Definitely saw a lot. Yes, I, it's interesting. I saw a lot of the, uh, I would say, the evolution of the opioid epidemic for the last decade. It has changed a lot in the last in the last decade, uh, and so, kind of saw. I saw the beginnings of what is what we now call the what we're now recognizing as the opioid epidemic.
0: Can you expand on that? The, uh, say some more about this.
1: So. And when I started, um, we were at the forefront of starting to get young people in methadone treatment. Frankly, that was new. Previously, methadone was sort of considered the end of the road. If you had attempted all other forms of treatment and they weren't working, you would try methadone. Uh, methadone started to become much more of a first-line uh, level of care for people because it was it just was a safety issue, trying to get someone to stop using IV heroin because it was so deadly. Um, Also, speaking again to the seeing younger people in treatment, um, the oxy epidemic and the fact that oxys became a drug of choice in high schools in the earlier 2000s, um, by the time you got to 2008, 2009, 2010, we started seeing a bunch of 25, 26, 27-year-olds who'd been using IV heroin for five, six years already because they started using Oxy's in high school.
0: Oh, So almost as if uh, Oxycodone was a gateway into heroin eventually?
1: Absolutely, and Oxycodone and Oxycontin were... Um, actually, in, in where I was, Oxycontin was the drug of choice for a lot of people. Um, it was almost more heavily abused than something like marijuana in the high schools because it seemed safer to people. when When people didn't know the long-term effects and the potential for developing dependence, if you tell a high schooler, hey here's this plant that comes from a dealer, we don't know what it really came from, and here's this pill that came from my grandmother's medicine cabinet, we know it came from a pharmacy, sometimes high schoolers would just think, hey that makes sense, I'll take the pill. So, oxy abuse became more prevalent in some of the areas around boston than and than other drugs. Uh, and then oxycotton itself led to for a lot of them, you know you start taking it as a pill, then you start crushing it and snorting it, and then you realize you can't pay eighty dollars every time you want to get high, but you can pay twenty dollars and get just as high with heroin. That happens very quick. that tends to happen very quickly with people.
0: Mm. okay, so the financial factors start to take a toll. And then, and then the disease progresses.
1: Absolutely, and the, the so moving along the way, someone would take it, going from orally to snorting it. Well, once you start snorting it, you're getting high faster, and then it's you're coming down faster, and then you can't maintain with that level. So that's where the switching to heroin comes in. Uh, and then once a lot of people would start with snorting or smoking heroin, and then eventually lead to IV. They just continued because you couldn't maintain the same level. Of effect once you start to develop a physical dependence using the same amount and the same route of administration uh, so you had to start either increasing the amount or change the route of administration and most people end up moving down both roads.
0: Well, very fascinating. I know that that is uh, probably one of the largest topics in the country today about just health care across the board, all different health problems the opioid epidemic might be number one in terms of what's talked about. So, it, very interesting to comment a little bit on. You're witnessing this evolution uh, over the last decade. What did you? Or what did you see with these clients in the realm of ambivalence?
1: Uh, well, for the most part, once someone starts gets to the place where they're shooting heroin they usually have an acute period of knowing they need to change and may try to get treatment then but if they don't get to that get treatment at that point sometimes they'll reach a point where it's just part of their daily life they just feel they need to do it to survive and in some ways they start to you you can have functioning opioid users uh that start to feel like well if i can maintain it if i can just keep going i don't really need to totally quit, but I can't afford to keep buying, you know, five, six bags of heroin a day. So I might try to get into where, where, what I saw a lot was people who would get into treatment in a medication assisted, uh, treatment program like methadone or suboxone to get enough so that they could function when they couldn't find drugs. Um, so for instance, if you were able to get yourself on a methadone program and get yourself on a dose that would, Uh, Make you feel steady. You could get your methadone and feel steady when you wanted to but not Take your dose every day and you could use on the days You didn't take your dose so you could still get high if you wanted to so we saw a lot of people who Were pretty ambivalent about actually wanting to get completely clean and sober and that can be from a treatment perspective a little Frustrating if you think of the idea of success being you have to be completely clean and sober but from a harm reduction perspective We've reduced the amount of times they're using per week, so we have had some level of success.
0: So, uh, say more about this when you say, when you say harm reduction.
1: So, harm reduction is a model of treatment that is based on um, the idea of reducing the negative health consequences that someone can incur from their ongoing drug use. And a lot of it's it's kind of controversial for a lot of people. The idea being that if Someone I like to I like to call it triage. If you're triaging someone who's coming into treatment, um, you're looking at what will kill them first. How do we stop that or reduce that? So harm reduction is triaging a drug user and saying, okay, using uh, IV heroin could kill someone by overdose, could kill someone through um, acute infection, an abscess, endocarditis, um, or could uh, long-term infection, Hepatitis C, HIV. Uh, so how do we reduce that harm? We reduce the amount of times they are using IV heroin or to, with the longer-term goal of eventually completely eliminating IV heroin
0: use. So, the, so harm reduction uh, seems to be on uh, kind of one side. If we were to put this on a continuum of the change topic, harm reduction seems to be on one side, and then I guess full kind of very strong recovery I guess would be on the other side of this continuum. And both of these topics do involve change. They just involve mm-hmm. uh, this. I know we throw out the phrase of meeting people where they're at. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there was a fair amount of that in the clinics that you were working at.
1: Yeah. Uh, so. If you want to put it somewhere on the, on the continuum, um, we can also we can compare it to other continuums. So I oftentimes will compare uh, methadone and opioid treatment in, in substance use disorders to a treatment for, let's say, diabetes. So if you were to have someone who comes in with a new diagnosis of type 2 diabetes, their blood sugar is out of control, they have no idea how to handle their diet, they're morbidly obese and you get them from being, let's say, a BMI of 45 to a BMI of 40. They're eating some vegetables in their day. They've started increasing their activity some, but they're still diabetic and they still need medication. You wouldn't say that there was no success there. There was some success. You have improved their quality of life to some respect. Similarly, if you have someone who is using IV heroin just to get out of bed, is living in a shelter or on the street is is surrounded completely with only their entire social life and family structure involved just other people they've met on the street and they know nobody who doesn't use and you're able to get them to a place where they don't have to use every day they've maybe found some uh, safer subsidized housing to live in and they are able to work 10 hours a week at home depot that's a huge success, even if they're still sometimes using cocaine or smoking weed or something like that. We wouldn't say there's no success there. Now, that quality of life is still, for a lot of people, not what you'd expect. Just like you would prefer the diabetic to get to a healthy body weight, reduce uh, all processed food and sugar, and increase you know, healthy activity and vegetables and everything to maybe one day get off all meds, that would definitely be an even bigger quality of life improvement, but it's not realistic for everybody. It's not necessarily where everybody is going to get. So if you're going to con- you know continue the analogy over to substance use disorders, we would love for everybody to eventually find real recovery and connection with a sober world and able to support themselves and work full time and that that is on the other end of the continuum, but that isn't always a realistic goal for people. So sometimes you have to assess by assessing their entire life, um, you know, their family. Did they grow up with in a family where everybody's using drugs? Did they grow up with friends where everybody's using drugs? Have they never gained the skills to support themselves and work full time and everything? Is it realistic to meet them and say, hey, one day I'm going to get you completely sober and working full-time and supporting yourself and not on any medications at all within the next year. Let's do that. You're setting someone up with this goal that isn't particularly attainable for most people.
0: And then, and then they just get discouraged. Absolutely. And then, they, and then they withdraw from treatment. Right. And then our, our efforts to get them engaged in actually speaking their mind and working through change just... Dissolves,
1: right? Right. then. Yes. So if to take it back to meeting someone where they're at if you want to meet them at Hey, just for for this next six months. The goal is let's reduce your IV drug use and you reach that goal you uh, Validate their ability to reach that goal and you set the new goal and the new goal is let's not use any illicit substances and if they're able to reach that goal for six months you give them a big pat on the back, and you talk about, all right, what's the next goal? And sometimes you can work with someone over the course of time to eventually reach, you know, full sobriety, off all medications, off all medication-assisted therapy, um, working and connected with a recovery community. And they may look back at where they started and think, there's no way I would have ever thought I would get here. It's like, right? Because if I told you this is where I wanted you to be at the beginning, you would have freaked out and run.
0: So do do we take a similar approach for the uh, the women in, in our women's program here on inpatient at Cedar?
1: Well, to some expe- to some extent, uh, yes, and to some extent no, for the most part, if someone is here, they already have a level of resources above um, what we would be working at in an outpatient methadone setting. So we're we still are meeting them where they're at, but where they're at is typically a little bit higher than where I would meet someone at in that prior environment. What I mean by that is they probably have loved ones in their life who are healthy and sober or able to, or maybe not necessarily in recovery, but don't have a substance use disorder, who they can connect with, who can help them and be supportive. And uh, they typically have the resources to have a safe place to stay and all of that, so they're already starting at a place where the idea of long-term recovery isn't as scary.
0: So they have some. We would say they have some recovery capital yes. that they might even even as even as low as health insurance. Correct. That that offer that opens a lot of doors for them for because it's it's pretty high end for people to come to an inpatient thirty-day residential treatment path they have to have at least something, insurance, the ability to pay family members who are supporting them be able to come into a health center like this.
1: Right, and with that would come, if you have the insurance to come to an inpatient program, you probably also have the insurance to go continue outpatient once you've completed inpatient and continue with uh, therapy and or psychiatry once you leave. Um, So you you have, just with that set up, the ability to continue on the continuum of care.
0: Sure. And I know we talk about that a lot, like trying to uh, get people to have kind of long-term engagement. I know that the, so it sounds like a methadone path. You're kind of doing harm reduction themes, meeting people where they're at, preventing death, preventing HIV, preventing incarceration, Mm -hmm. working with them to reach small goals. And then always an air of functionality, like the and functionality being working a job, paying their bills, meeting their requirements with their family, being able, being responsible, and then we build from there. Right. And then so, but on on cedar inpatient, we may have in some ways the same degree of ambivalence, but we're approaching it in a, in a different angle. The, I know the other thing that definitely plays in is we don't have people people over their period of time in treatment are off substances. We don't have people going in and out of using cocaine in a structured setting. This is a hospital.
1: Yeah, we're fairly confident while they're he- while they're here for the 30 days, they don't have access to other substances. So the major benefit of that is we're able to actually do counseling in groups with a sober environment.
0: Sure. Mm-hmm. And actually get them get them actually talking and instead of just surviving
1: and getting getting them experiencing their emotions with without the ability to try to regulate it with the substance and you know, be able to reconnect with family sober and have that uh, benefit to their treatment, that extra level added to their treatment.
0: Experience the compassionate
1: care of CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Located at the University of Colorado Hospital, we manage complex health needs in addition to addiction. To learn more, visit cedarcolorado.org.
0: I, I like your examples of comparing things like uh, diabetes, obesity, uh, physical rehab to the way we would approach addiction treatment. And I know one common language that's used is we talk about stages of change.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, can you comment a little on this? like what are how we how would we define this?
1: So stages of change would be um, where where someone is and in, in their personal belief of their need to change and actions they've taken towards change. Um, and you can have all of the stages in treatment at any time uh, within a milieu. You can have someone here who's completely pre contemplative. You know, I, I alluded to the the intervention type uh, entry into treatment. Uh, it's not it it's not unheard of for someone to make it into treatment who fully the day before did not believe they had any reason to change had no had no concept that change was coming, and so they're in what's called pre-contemplative, where they're not even thinking about change; they're just actively in their addiction. Uh, and then next you would have the contemplation stage, and if you want to compare that to uh, if we want to keep going back to the analogy on um, obesity and diabetes, uh, if you were someone who was in the contemplative stage of change, you probably maybe weighed yourself that morning and realized, you know, maybe I should start thinking about making some, making some changes that'll help me lose some weight, or maybe I should go to my doctor and see, I've been feeling a little sluggish, see if something's up.
0: Oh, So almost as if a pre-contemplative uh your spouse makes the appointment for you contemplative you schedule your own appointment.
1: Yeah, that works. Um although if you're making the appointment, I guess we could say that at that point you're either in preparation or starting to move towards the action stage, but
0: So those are the, those would be the next phases. So yes. the, so we got mm-hmm. we have pre contemplative, contemplative, preparation. You are open you're 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 becoming a little bit more open minded to Actually embracing change.
1: Correct, and you've started making some moves towards making change. Maybe that's making the appointment um, and actually showing up to the appointment. You know, maybe that's uh, you went out and buy bought yourself a nice pair of walking shoes. You've started making some moves towards. I'm going to actually commit to this that I'm going to make this change. But you haven't actually bought full into all of the changes yet.
0: So uh, I guess uh, bridging back to on the addiction front, do we see people at CEDAR who we would kind of describe as in a preparation stage of change?
1: I would think on an inpatient level, preparation is a pretty common phase to be. I think some people think that once they're inpatient, they think they're already in action because that is an action. And yes, you you have physically made the move to pack your bag and come to an inpatient facility. And that is an action but there's more to treatment than just coming and, and getting yourself checked in so i think preparation is a pretty common place of where we find people there's the recognition that change needs to be made and there's readiness to start making those changes and just have begun making some adjustments but not necessarily fully in action phase
0: yet like you're exploring your options yes in mm-hmm. terms of things that might help
1: correct mm-hmm.
0: okay and then action would be the fourth stage. So these are people that are really, they're in it. They're working a process. They're engaged.
1: Right. They've fully accepted, and from an addiction perspective, they fully accepted that they are an addict or an alcoholic. They've fully accepted that they need to make major lifestyle changes in order to be able to... Find and maintain recovery, um, and they've started working on what those changes are. On to a larger extent, you know, for some people that means quitting their job or changing their hours at their job, or um, maybe it means cutting off certain relationships um, that are unhealthy for them. It's it's about looking at the entire picture of what was helping you maintain your addiction and making changes to all of those pieces.
0: Okay. I know there is a fifth phase in which sometimes people call maintenance, and that seems to be, I guess, just uh, doing continuing to do what works. These are people who have made a significant amount of change, and they just are good stewards of their health going forward.
1: Yeah, and I think for some people, maintenance is the hardest phase of all. Um, Maintenance is about, a lot of times, continuing doing the exact same things you were doing in the action phase, but um, it's become almost, it's become second nature to you. It's like, of course you wouldn't go to a bar after work anymore, you don't even think about it because you know that's not an appropriate place for you. Um, It's, you don't re-engage with former unhealthy um, social connections. You are And you're continuing to do a lot of the things you set up while you were in the action phase. So if part of your action phase was setting up a recovery community, finding a group of meetings you liked, and doing some work to check out all different meetings, on the maintenance phase you know which ones you like, you know who your sponsor is, you go to the meetings you like, you stay in touch with your sponsor. So there's still work in the maintenance phase. It's not just coasting and pretending the addiction never happened.
0: So do we see uh, women who struggle with this that they were they actually were in a maintenance phase of recovery and then all different life happened all different things and then they they kind of cycled back through and they fell back into their addiction.
1: That can happen um, pretty regularly. You know, addiction is a relapsing disease. Um, I think when someone does come back here, one of the biggest messages I want to make sure they get is that we're We have no stigma against them for that. We are continuing, we will be here to help them no matter what. Um, And something I tell, so if someone relapses, one thing I always want them to know is, you know, if you had three good years of sobriety, you started to screw up for six months and you came in here, you know what, you still have those three years. You still learned during those three years. You still built connections during those three years. Those three years don't disappear. And I think that's something that, uh, Society, in general, when we think of addiction, doesn't quite understand, and you think of a relapse as a failure, and if you want to take it back to the diabetes analogy, if someone does really well, is able to reduce their regular blood sugar, is able to reduce their dependence on medication, and then maybe after a few years, kind of slips a little, starts to gain a little weight, their blood sugar starts to creep back up, no one is going to look at them and tell them they're a total failure they've had those three years where they did well. They just need to retweak some things.
0: So that connects a little bit back to uh, what you mentioned in your days in the methadone clinic is people having a week of not using heroin or even a week of quitting tobacco or other drugs. uh, That's a good week. That's a healthier week. And um, and we care about that. We don't want to kind of take that away from them. They earned that and we see the same of even if it's you know, one week of not using heroin, three years of not drinking, all those are positive, really positive things that people earned.
1: Yeah, and I like to emphasize that to people because I don't think a focus on I relapse, that's a failure, is helpful to anybody. That can lead to a lot of shame. And a lot of times the sh- the shame around relapse keeps someone out using longer or drinking longer. Um and destigmatizing the shame around relapse is an important piece to helping someone uh, find treatment again and, and get better.
0: Very good. Some of this philosophy, I guess today we're talking about treatment philosophy, harm reduction, stages of change, and everything that we see either outpatient territory, and you mentioned many years of experience in methadone treatment um, in Boston, and then also pretty high end. Intensive residential here we see a lot of parallels, a lot of kind of surprising parallels,
1: sure, I mean at the end of the day i I will tell anybody um, you know addiction is addiction you, the disease has a lot of the same effects on people, no matter what their socioeconomic status, no matter what their resources it's just the the particular consequences you see are are different. But at the end of the day, you find people who are losing relationships because of their use. They're losing their ability to be the best person that they can be, to be as successful in their in what they want to do with themselves, um, losing their concept of who they are and what they're worth because of their d- drug or alcohol use. And no matter where they're starting from, if we can help improve those, then at the end of the day, we we've, we've made some improvement in somebody's life.
0: Sure. If you had a, if there were a listener out there who was a prospective a woman thinking of entering our women's residential treatment program, mm-hmm. what would you tell that person?
1: Uh, I would tell them that 30 days is nothing in the span of their life. And if they would like to, find a place where they are going to make connections with other women who are also dealing with a lot of the same things, whether you're a mom or not a mom, whether you're in a really high-stress career or just kind of coasting along uh, in the job of the week. You know, no matter where you are with this, you have something in common with everybody else here, and if you want, want to change, you will find someone here who will you'll be able to connect with, and you'll be able to make those changes.
0: Sure. To meet them where they're at and mm-hmm. to move kind of one step at a time from progressing through stages of change and really feeling feeling proud of that progress. Absolutely. Very powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, very good. So uh, so this is uh, Alex Korath, uh, the supervisor of the Women's Residential Program here at CEDAR. I'm uh, Dr. Pat Failing. I'm one of the addiction psychiatrists here, and I think we're going to sign off for today. Thank you much, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Through the Trees, the Cedar Addiction Treatment Podcast. Please visit cedarcolorado.org for a wide array of educational content about the disease of addiction and the science of recovery. If you or a loved one are considering CEDAR and the University of Colorado Hospital for treatment, please speak with our admissions team at 720-848-3000. CEDAR, the Center for Dependency, Addiction, and Rehabilitation. Helping people build a life of recovery.